there. I got it. We 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 got it. We're I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. This is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About ghost lovers. About walking through cemeteries. About growing up in not a funeral house, but a funeral home. (laughs) About dealing with your past. About being deeply, intensely, and irrevocably millennial. About punning all over the goddamn place. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, Isabeau and I will be discussing uh, The Dead Romantics by Ashley Poston. A GMA, that's Good Morning America, (laughs) book club pick. Does GMA uh, pick a lot of romance? You know, I honestly have no idea. I've never seen this sticker before. I've seen the Reese Witherspoon book club sticker, and they seem to pick romance every third. But I don't know about GMA. <gasps> so do you know what? Hmm. Reese Witherspoon, she's a she's kind of a business genius. She is. Her book club, whenever she picks a book for her book club, she also mm-hmm. gets the movie rights for it exclusive to her production company. Yeah, and that's how she, you know, gets things like where the crawdads sing. And so it's like, so she picks a book, it'll become a hit book because it's on her book club. It's a very popular book club. And then she makes a movie based on it, and then that's inevitably a hit. (laughs) Uh, For example, see where the crawdads sing and Daisy Jones and the Six. Yeah, smart. Yeah, she's incredibly business savvy. Yeah. So, you know, it's kudos to the Dead Romantics for getting on GMA's book club. Maybe next time you'll end up on Reese Witherspoon's book club. You can only hope. The dream for any of us. But I also think Good Morning America's book club came under fire for being exceptionally white, not having any authors of color. Oh, that's too bad. I remember that from a while ago. I think that happened. Seems incredibly predictable. <laughs> yeah. But uh, why is, did you pick this book? Because you're, I guess you're not a follower of Good America's Book Club. This book came to me in a care package because as listeners know, I have delivered a child. And this person sent me this book and was like, the baby gets all the presents. Here's something that I think you'll enjoy. I did not pick it for myself, Uh but it felt seasonally appropriate. And I'm like, I'm down. You and I have been looking for a ghost romance where someone has sex with a ghost. Yeah. And, you know. Thought we'd give it a shot. A Man of Good Taste was uh, uh, just a little morsel, and then we got the dead romantics. Yeah. So. I, I feel like when I was imagining a book with ghost sex, I was also imagining something distinctly more Victorian. And the dead romantics is definitely mm. in situ uh, as a Berkeley contemporary romance. It is. Relentlessly modern. Yes. So so not a lot of cobwebs in Berkeley's lineup. No. But you don't know that yet because we haven't read the back of the book. Yeah. Do you so. want to read the back of the book for us, Morgan? Yes, I would love to read the back of the book. Okay. <clears throat> Florence Day is the ghostwriter for one of the most prolific romance authors in the industry, and she has a problem. After a terrible breakup, she no longer believes in love. It's as good as dead. Get it, ghostwriter? Ooh. 
when her new editor, a too handsome mountain of a man, won't give her an extension on her book deadline, Florence prepares to kiss her career goodbye. But then she gets a phone call she never wanted to receive, and she must return home for the first time in a decade to help her family bury her beloved father. For ten years, she's run from the town that never understood her. And even though she misses the sound of a warm southern night and her eccentric loving family and their funeral parlor, she can't bring herself to stay. Even with her father gone, it feels like nothing in this town has changed, and she hates it. Until she finds a ghost standing at the funeral parlor's front door, just as broad and infuriatingly handsome as ever, and he's just as confused about why he's there as she is. Romance is most certainly dead. But so is her new editor, and his unfinished business will have her second-guessing everything she's ever known about love stories. And then we've got like a little bolded, like quippier summary. A disillusioned millennial ghostwriter who quite literally has some ghosts of her own has to find her way back home in this sparkling adult debut from national best-selling author Ashley Poston. I like the quippy one better. I do too. One of my issues with the back of the book is that it doesn't mention that her father was actually the undertaker. Her sister was also working as an undertaker. Mm-hmm. I think the family dynamics are are pretty crucial here. The book doesn't function without them. Yeah, and they're not, they're not, I guess it does mention her family. I also am curious what the sound of a southern night is. Probably just like cicadas or something. Zicadas. Excuse me? Zicadas. Are you kidding me? No. It starts with a z sound? Yeah, and it's the C I C I Zicadas. It's Zicadas. Did the book pronounce it Cicadas? No, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't truly. I'm like Cicada. <laughs> like the big bugs with the red eyes that come out I at like 11 and 17. Zicadas. Like zebra? Yeah, like zebra, Zicada. This might be regional because I can tell you in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Missouri, it's cicadas. Like it's a big deal for the cicadas to come out. I know it's a it's a big deal for the cicadas, but we say like it's this is incredible news to me. I guess it could be cicadas, like an S sound, like a soft C. On uh on Wikipedia, it has a pronunciation guide, but I don't understand what any of these letters or symbols mean, so I don't know why I looked it up. <laughs> I can tell you with confidence that it is not cicadas. Cicadas. Did I say cicadas? You did, which is why I said cicadas. Jesus Christ. But I love that the two of us ended up on completely opposite <laughs> ends of a reasonable pronunciation of the word and just blew each other's minds. <laughs> <laughs> You know, (laughs) it's a weird word. It's a weird spelling. Uh, English sucks. Anyway, (laughs) this book is very specific about what a southern summer night sounds like. It's rain, it's wind, it's cicadas, it's, <laughs> it's the sensory experience of North... It's the sensory experience. It's the sensory experience of North Kakalaki. Yeah. It's Waffle House. Yeah. I, it, so, like, this book has, like, a lot of kind of dark 
subject matter. Our main character returns to her family funeral home because her father has died. That's pretty heavy. And she does it after she's kind of failed at her dream job. Also heavy because she had a bad breakup with a far more successful horror author. And now her editor is dead. And like one of the reasons she hasn't gone back to her hometown is because when she was a youngster, she and as an adultster, She's able to see ghosts and help them pass on by assisting with their unfinished business. And when she was a teen, she helped solve a murder case and was people kind of knew that it was because she could see ghosts or that that's what she alleged. And so she became uh, ostracized and her father also could see ghosts. Um, But she's been living that New York lifestyle that Taylor Swift New York lifestyle. Yeah, she lives with her best friend who is gay and works in marketing. Um, Social media marketing. Social media marketing. They drink wine and go to cool bars and wear uh, Louboutins. So much of this felt like every movie I've ever seen of a young person who goes to New York to make it that I felt really comfortable predicting a lot of the beats. Yeah. And that was sort of like for me because it <laughs> it didn't do anything that was surprising or unique to me until we started moving back into um, the South in North Carolina when she returns for her father's funeral. Well, this this book is like uh, my pithier summary of it would be it's a Hallmark Christmas movie, but with halloween and ghosts um and like something like that something like this is like more about the concept like the idea of like something being high concept is that it takes a pretty standardized tropey one might say cliche story and then adds like a really high concept such as It's a contemporary romance novel about a big city girl who's dragged back to her small town for a brief moment, and then she falls in love with a guy while she's there, except... He did. He's dead. He's a ghost. So her editor, they they share a smooch in New York City, briefly, and then she goes back home because her dad has died, and then she sees his ghost uh, there. And so she has to help him with some unfinished business. However, as they fall in love, the unfinished business becomes less and less appealing uh, because she wants him to stick around. She doesn't want him to pass over to the other side. So how are they gonna how are they gonna figure this out? Well, this book gives you two very specific reference points. <laughs> it gives you while you were sleeping, the Sandra Bullock. Um, sweet movie where she falls in love and creates a whole backstory for a man that she sees uh, every day at the L. Uh, and then he's shout thrown... Shout out to the CTA. Shout out to the CTA. Then he's thrown under the tracks and... Stop ghost buses. Talking about ghosts. <laughs> he, uh, he gets concussed and then she tells his family that she is his fiance and his lover. And then the and then he unconcusses and she falls in love with his brother. It's great. You should really watch it. I recommend it around Christmas because it is Christmassy. Um, and then the other reference that this book gives us pretty early on is Meet Joe Black, which I would argue is pretty high concept romance. Yeah, 
you know, we we do do spoilers on this show. So if you're interested in reading this book. I mean, like one of the things that did pull me through was like the how are they going to stick this landing? Because like the happily ever after is such a key point of romance. And as with most high concept things, right, you look at you're like all the scenery uh, is familiar, you know. Mm -hmm. Why is this like subversion or rupture happening? And how's it going to work out? For those of you who don't want to read the book, the way it works out is he wasn't really dead. He was in a coma. He wasn't really dead. So she saw his coma ghost and fell in love. It worked like a regular ghost. Like he could walk through walls and she couldn't touch him. Yeah. And he left a cold spot, which is also the plot of a movie with Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo that takes place in San Francisco, where she is also hit by a car and in a coma and then starts haunting Mark Ruffalo for no reason. He's never seen a ghost before in that movie. I'm going to say Ruffalo? 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 Here we go again. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to die on that Ruffalo Hill. Um, But I would like to bring up that movie because the thing that I remember most about that is there's this line where the kid from Napoleon Dynamite is this medium. And he says to Mark Ruffalo, who's taken Reese Witherspoon's ghost to the medium, uh, she's the most alive ghost that I've ever met, which keys us in that she's not really dead. And he says to Mark Ruffalo, who's alive in the movie, um, but you, you're the one who's ghosting through life. And there's this very beautiful scene then where we find out that Mark Ruffalo isn't just like a sad sack fucker. He had this really sad thing happened to him where his like his wife that he loved very much died of an aneurysm in front of him right she uh stumbled like her shoe heel had snapped and she sat down to look at it and then she touched her head and said that she had a headache and then she the aneurysm burst and she died and mark ruffalo's character is dealing with this incredible trauma and tragedy and he's afraid to love again because love can be taken from you that quickly and I don't recommend that anybody watch this movie. I don't think it's that good. I think Mark brought his entire being into that one little speech, um, which is why I remember it so vividly. And the reason why I bring it up is because I think this book functions a lot like that for me, where there are such incredible moments that like all the other parts can kind of just like fade entirely into the background because there are some really there are some huge genuine gems and it's because of that heaviness that you talked about about the dad dying and the the stuff about having a dream job that you're failing at and th- those aspects did make this book feel unique even as it consistently plays on the beats of a Hallmark movie I've seen a thousand times so you enjoyed it I don't know yet <laughs> So this book is, you know, there's like some key differences. Like uh, our main character, she's given up. She believes love is dead because her relationship ended in a pretty normal way. (laughs) Her boyfriend stole her ideas and then made a million dollar book contract. Pretty normal. Yeah. (laughs) And but it's like, but he gets all the credit because horror is such a respected genre. (laughs) (laughs) Compared to romance. Um, (laughs) There's a 
lot of like insidery stuff in this text, like um, yes, talking about how the romance industry works. But there's also like a lot of chippiness about romance itself. Like she comes to the to this office and sees this like hunky guy, and she's like who is working for a romance imprint and she's like he's gonna love and support the idea that i want to write the next book without a happily ever after <laughs> and he's like yeah no of course not that's not what we do here which i appreciated but also like the mindset that we're meant to identify with there is that like hunky boys don't appreciate romance and um also oh hunky boy does and, like, he's seen as, like, a good person because he likes romance novels. Uh. <laughs> I think this book does a lot of strange shorthand for the romance industry specifically. So, like, um, she, after this disastrous inner uh, meeting with her hunky editor named Benji Andor, uh, who she wants to climb like a mountain because he's hunky, and we discover that he does believe in happily ever afters. Uh, she goes to a bookstore to do a little retail therapy, and she pulled out a book that did not belong in the political thriller, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, and decided to walk it back to the romance section where it did. And yes, then she mentions yeah. The Hating Game by Sally Thorne, and then she mentions... Um, Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. And it's not only just the titles, it's also the authors and, like, this relentless... I think it's more crucially the authors. It's more crucially the authors. Why do you say that? So, like, she also talks about authors like Nora Jones. And, like, when she's looking at the spines of these books in this bookstore, um, or later when she's reflecting, she always references authors, right? And she talks about McQuiston as, like, an author name, not, like, Red, White, and Royal Blue, right? Like, Casey McQuiston as, like, a standalone reference. I don't, I mean, I think that's true. She talks about the authors more than the books themselves. But I think the other thing about the constant author name dropping, because she also talks about... Christina Lawrence, the duo who writes under that name. Uh, Talks about Christina Lawrence a lot. A lot. And then Christina Lauren blurbed the book as an absolute and unexpected delight. <laughs> so. Felt a little circle jerky. Oh, my God. That's so funny. That's so funny. Is it funny? But you know what I think? <laughs> but like what I'm saying is, is like this book kind of like Nora Roberts, I think, has proven out as an author who will stand the test of time. Yes. Already. I don't think Christina Lauren or Casey McQuiston have really done the same thing. No, not yet. But I think this book mentioning them in the same breath. Mm hmm. And with as much frequency mm -hmm. and without tying them to a specific title at each time she mentions them. Sometimes she just mentions them as the title, as the, as the content itself. Yeah, that's the reference is the author. I think that's taking a pretty big gamble. <laughs> what's going to, 
what's going to stand the test of time. Yeah, in some ways it just like I couldn't tell if this author like and that's I think that's where like my first slippage started to happen where it felt like this Florence Day, the main character, is having this real struggle with romance. But then this text is not having a struggle at all and is like constantly name dropping. And it kind of felt like you should read this if you like. And then it's like the question of who is that for? Yeah. Is it for a person who isn't in the romance industry? And then this book is like, you should read these authors. Or is it to like, I didn't know what was happening as a as a longtime romance reader who's familiar with the authors mentioned in this text. And for the the character Florence Day to be like, romance is dead and this is all a lie. She's like mad at the romance industry for perpetuating an ideal kind of romantic love that's unattainable because she's had this bad breakup and she doesn't believe in love anymore. And she's actually had like a series of like non-starter relationships. And she doesn't she doesn't like her job anymore and she doesn't like the genre anymore because it she doesn't want to be part of this thing perpetuating a lie which then you pull the facade back of that argument a little bit and it's mostly just because she has massive writer's block it's not that she doesn't believe in love I didn't understand who those references were for yeah I think asking like who what reader this author had in mind this text is for is is a really interesting way to like start to like peel at this book because I think it's interesting that like the HEA is never referenced as insidery as the HEA um happily ever after is I don't really recall that being in the text I can't search it because I listened to it as a book on tape it's only at the beginning I think it's interesting that romance is like resistant to the idea that people will take these ideas that are espoused in these texts and like somehow allow it to influence their everyday lives meanwhile we have a romance author who's like i can't write about a happily ever after because i don't believe that they exist ever is not only like rubbing against its own like internal logic but it's also causing friction against the overriding assumptions of this genre or like the overriding like not like the assumptions of the genre, but like the cultural context that the genre exists in. Yeah, I think that's a good way. But also it's like, thou dost protest too much. Exactly. Exactly. Like Like it's a little embarrassing. Yeah, I just like, I didn't believe it from from jump. And so I don't think the, the, and the book clearly doesn't believe it, right? It's a romance. So then like, and so, like, that that was, like, a moment of slippage where it's, like, the text doesn't even try to pretend to believe this. And, like, our main character. And maybe that's the function of first person. But I was, like, I this these things are not gelling in a way. It's, like, um, you referred to it in yeah. a different uh, episode where you called it, like, you could hear the, like, kakunk of the engine turning over. And that's what this felt like. It, it was, like, it's not that I didn't enjoy this book. It's that... I felt the kakunk a couple of times. Yeah, for sure. And like, there's also something about this book, like it is, we talk about the author references, but there are so many specific references. Yes. And references that don't actually like land as cleanly as I think they could. What is your, what is the one that you're thinking about? I'm thinking about the term smut. Ooh, okay. 
The term smut comes up a lot. She like it does. It comes up in the foreword where she talks about writing fan fiction smut, and she talks about writing smutty books and reading smutty books. And there's all of this discussion of smut, but this text itself is like not smut. <laughs> this is a sweet romance. But it seems like smut is like the thing to say now, you know? It almost feels like search engine optimization. That's interesting. I think you're right. And I think it also feels like the references, and I think smut is a really good example. The references function like a kind of shorthand or scaffolding for readers in the know. And you would know more about this than I would as somebody who studied fanfic. I'm just a practitioner. But like smut is like a hashtag that you put on your fanfic so that people know that you have an explicit sex scene. It's not necessarily like this It it used to be pejorative when people talked about romance books as smutty books, but it's not pejorative in the fanfic community. And she's using it in both senses of like this book is what what the book really means is that it's supposed to be steamy, not smutty. The new perspective on it is that smut means it's like a good sexy smut and steamy are slowly becoming interchangeable because some of the reviews I see on social media on TikTok and Instagram refer to books as smut and i'm like okay i'm expecting like uh sierra simone who i think is like a good reference point for that right like that's what i'm expecting i am instead finding uh something more akin to a sweet romance and smut hasn't really is not really like a useful word anymore it's like saying something's cool oh interesting okay and, like, if you want to have, like, a cool book, it should be smutty. Someone should call it smutty. Um, and so even though, like, that's very confusing to people like me who grew up in the heyday of Tumblr. You know? Ex- exactly. I, so this book insists on the smuttiness of this fanfic and all of these other books. And it it's, itself is incredibly chaste and incredibly sweet. And I didn't know what to do with that i mean honestly i came to this book with an expectation of a pretty explicit ghost sex scene and found myself fairly disappointed (laughs) (laughs) so one of the references that i think could have been cleaner for me i think the smut one is a really interesting one and i'd like to keep thinking about this but for me one of the ones that didn't land was this whole thing about her ex-boyfriend lee marlowe who stole her story and her ideas and is making all this money he took the small town stories that she told him and turned it into what she called like a star's hollow version of her hometown and i was like okay gilmore girl reference that's supposed to be pejorative than the fact that it's like the town is it's he's made it too cookie cutter yeah she says they're all like stars. She says like people who write about small towns like hers all end up being like two stars hollow or like what's the other super dark version? I don't know. I like I'm I I should have marked that. But then we get to the town and it is just And it's stars hollow. It's stars hollow, like down to the brick and mortar fucking florist who like, you know, is like trying to find it. And then there's the super cool couple who runs the B and B. And then yeah. there's like the the mayor is a dog. And like yeah. the 
I just like, I was like, you can't say that one of your criticisms of your shitty ex-boyfriend is that he made a cookie cutter of your town and then you get to the town and it's literally Stars Hollow. Not not just, and I, I do think she's not just being critical of her ex-boyfriend. She's being critical of uh, media that portrays small towns in general. Yes. And then proceeds to do that exact thing. The exact thing well what's interesting is like so romance is is you know but like most genre fiction works off of a lot of references normally and you talked about scaffolding and i would say for the most part references work as scaffolding it's a way to kind of climb your story right and support what you're doing as you're building it which is what scaffolding is. That's why it's such a helpful term. But like this book, it feels like something more reliant. Like it is the thing. The reference is the thing, is the story. And the reference is contemporary romance. The reference is Hallmark Christmas movies. And I think that's when it it's not scaffolding it's like a it's like a skeleton yes absolutely for sure The references become like the core thing of the piece right which so when this the other blurb on here is that this is a fresh fun and thoroughly modern book part of me was like yes it's thoroughly modern because it's like 2022 and all of these references millennials and zennials should get but in 10 years this book will not age very well because it's two of its moment and two insidery this is another kind of facet of like who is this book for like is this book meant to be consumed in 10 years great question like was this book written with that perspective or did it have like you know and and by that perspective i mean like are it's not like anyone sets out to write like actually i'm sure some people do set out to write like timeless <laughs> <laughs> novel sure but it's like is the person you're writing for is the reader you're imagining are they how specific of the moment are they like how niche are your references some of these references are very niche and some of them aren't and some of them i feel sort of like easter eggy right so even yeah. our main male hero benji andor so what I'm bringing to Benji Andor is Game of Thrones for Benji and Andor Star Wars for Cassian Andor. And like, that's just. But, oh, my God. But Ben Kenobi. Yep. Ben Kenobi. Ben Ben Kenobi. And then Ben uh, Solo. Yep. Who is, what's his name? Kylo Ren. Adam Driver. Yep. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> hope not I genuinely look I love Adam Driver that makes one of us I've loved him for a long time though that you were first on that ride <sighs> come on thank you thank you for acknowledging that I call him like I see him it was the I remember when he was in episode one of girls mm -hmm. and that show came out and he was like dancing at this warehouse party and Jemima Kirk says who's that guy and Hannah says oh that's Adam 
And she was like, yeah, he seems very first man. <laughs> Boy, you, <laughs> you just so good. You just pulled that right out. That was great. I did. I remember it so well. I remember thinking like, God, that's so good. <laughs> it is. It's very good. And you know what? He's he's a fine actor. Like he has real turns for me sometimes. But the other thing about why I was getting real Adam Driver vibes other than the name and like he has these brown eyes that turn to ochre and like long dark hair. And I'm like, all right, this kind of feels like Adam Driver for these reasons. But maybe I'm bringing that to it. But then there's this I whole. I have dis- never once see- thought of Adam Driver as having dark eyes that turn to ochre. So who's the real Adam Driver fan on the podcast? <laughs> Don't show me myself. Um, <laughs> but she's like, she uh, Florence Day, when she first sees him, insists on wanting to climb him like a mountain, which is also the running bit that John Oliver did about Adam Driver for an entire season. God damn it. <laughs> So again, some of these references feel like very on the nose and like I know like I know what they are. Some of them feel like tailored for the things that I consume. Right. 100%. And so then part of me is like, am I bringing everything that I consume to this book? Yes, obviously we always do that. But how are you pinging all of these things if it isn't that? Yeah. And so when you said that the references feel like the skeleton, that is how I felt about the Benji Andor character. Like I he just felt like everything we have in the zeitgeist about Adam Driver in a book editor character. The moments that this book functions like that, it's it, the skeleton doesn't function well. Like the book itself begins to just um, creak in a way that doesn't land. No, because because skeletons should be things like big ideas, like soul-sized questions. Yes. Ugh. God, you said that so well. There's the nun who uh, Dead Man Walking is based on. She one time I heard her say, like, I wanted when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a nun. And the guy was like, why would you want to be a nun when you were a little girl? She was like, because I knew what I was capable of. And I wanted a life that confronted soul sized questions. Mm. But that's like what this that's what the core, I think, of a text should be. And I think like a lot of books we've read. Including, you know, contemporary Berkeley romances Mm -hmm. have had those kind of, that has been more the core and references, right, were scaffolding. It was ways to be like, here, you understand this piece of popular culture, right? Like, you understand that this is Kylo Ren, so you can, like, get a grasp on what this guy is like, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And so... I would like to put to you my working thought about this book. Okay. I don't think it's a romance. I don't (gasps) think it's a romance in the traditional sense of a romance. Whoa. And why not? Because the skeleton of the romance kerkunks way more often than the book asking soul questions about things like family and grief. There's this part at the beginning when she gets the phone call from her mom and she 
her mom just says this beautiful thing where he's gone. The word was so quiet, I barely heard it. Or maybe my heart thundering in my ears was too loud. But whatever it was, the word didn't register. Not really. Not for a long, long moment. And then she is, so she's out in public. She's on the street when she's received this call. And she says, all I wanted to do was break into pieces and be carried off by a silent dead wind because there wasn't a world without my father's stupid parlor playlists and his cheesy jokes and his bear hugs. That world didn't exist. It couldn't. And I think this book isn't a love story in the sense of two people getting together. I think this book is about a daughter saying goodbye to her dad. Can it not be both? It can be both, but I think it does one better than the other because those are two big projects. So that would postulate, if this is not a romance, Mm -hmm. then that would further postulate that things like trope and overall structure are not what makes a romance. Mm -hmm. And by overall structure, I am, of course, referring to the happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Because this book has the, it has the romance beats Mm -hmm. in, you know, in full performance, right? So it's, it's difficult to, to say it, like it's so romancy. How is it not a romance? Mm-hmm. I guess is the, is the difficulty there, and I think what you're saying is is that be- because those bigger ideas around romance aren't central or aren't those are used as like the scaffolding rather than the skeleton. Then that's what it, that's how it is short of being an example of the genre. Yes. And so, like, I would like to present one last piece of evidence. So this is at the funeral. And (laughs) the dad has done this amazing thing where he's, like, called, like, Party City. And he's, like, got all these balloons and say, like, it's a death. And, like, he's invited the whole town. And they have, like, thousands of wildflowers. And he has an Elvis impersonator. Yeah. And, like... The funeral setting itself is so full of these incredible details and it's tactile and it's full and it's a sensory experience for all of my senses. And then we have this beautiful goodbye where, you know, she's reading this letter that he wrote to his family. She reads it and she's holding hands with her siblings and it's really beautiful. And then like, you know, the funeral is going on without her and she has this sort of long thought and she says because dad was right in the end about love it was loyal and stubborn and hopeful it was a brother calling before a funeral to ask how the latest book was going it was a sister scolding her older sister for always running away it was a little girl on a stormy night tucked into the lap of an undertaker listening to the sound of the wind through the creaky victorian house it was a ballroom dancer spinning around in an empty parlor with the ghost of her husband and a song in her throat it was petting good dogs and quiet morning walks up beside a man with impossibly dark eyes and a voice with syrupy sweetness it was a best friend flying in from new york on a moment's notice it was life wild and finite (laughs) it's so nice like this book this book has some really great uh speeches like that it has some great soliloquies it does and that's why like but so do other romance novels 
I think what struck me about this, about not being a romance novel, is like that that feels like big soul question about like love writ large, like love in all of its um, shades rather than just romantic love. It's also agape and fraternal love and like all of the kinds of love that people experience and that this book is really really sings when it talks about those experiences it's so much more specific and so less so much less reliant on pop culture references that this that's the part of the book that seems to me to function better and so the romance like the romance itself kind of bookends this text which is about grief and i thought like this and it, we've read, you know, it's not that romance can't do this. It's just that I don't think that this book is a romance. So to, to kind of try to like summarize and see if I'm understanding what you're saying. The reason this isn't a romance is because the central love story isn't the romantic love story between the two main characters. Yes. The central love story is between um, our main character and her family. Yes. I, I, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's a really hard thing to draw out because there's so much flash and bang in the romantic relationship. And I think that flash and bang is all of these cultural references. Yeah. Yeah, like I, one of the the quotes that I wrote down, the only quote I wrote down, I listened to this, which I never do, but um, I loved listening to it. I think it might have changed my experience of the book, but maybe not. But I, our main character says, all good love stories have an ending. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was, that really struck me because endings are such a key part of how we think about romance. But endings are also such a key part of how we think about, you know, life and death. Mm-hmm. All good love stories have an ending. And she she ponders this as she's so the the author that she's been ghostwriting for wrote a really famous book prior to her ghostwriting that ends with a, a knock on the door. And the editor, Benji suggests that he believes that whoever was at the door was not her was not the hero of the romance and she says of course it was it had to be because it was a romance not and like i remember thinking like there's no way that would have like flown (laughs) not to have like absolute certainty that like it's it's the heteros are gonna die together now (laughs) Like, (laughs) like I don't think Nora Robert, a Nora Roberts type could have gotten that published. But I thought it was like an interesting idea. And, you know, I think you might be pointing to something really key. Like the parts of this book that feel uh, not good are the romancy parts. And the parts that feel really fun and nice and satisfying are parts that might feature her love interest but are really about the family like i'm thinking about when she's playing cards great scene with her family after the wake and she she 
she's really bad at playing cards. And her love interest, who's a ghost, who's mm-hmm. only visible to her, starts helping her just play hearts or whatever. And he's he's kind of an also-ran in that scene. Like, a lot of it is about... And I and I feel strongly that, you know, whenever the person you romantically love folds in nicely with your family, it's a very satisfying, it feels very, you know, peaceful. If you have a good relationship with your family, that is. But, and that can be a good feeling, but there was something about that scene that was more about her coming to peace with her family rather than feeling like a resolution with her romantic interest. Now that you point it out. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. So I listened to this book, which I don't normally do. And so much of this book was like, ugh. To me. <laughs> like, I, the specificity of the references felt like a very specific, like a very particular kind of like BuzzFeed millennial thing that is uh, both relatable and therefore embarrassing to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then like... This, like, thing about smut and, like, it, using the word smut repeatedly in, like, a non-smutty book also really, like, brushed my hair the wrong direction, against the grain. And I remember writing this down, the phrase, like, pineapple Riesling. Yep. Like, I can't think of a beverage that I could possibly dislike more. And so I thought, is this, like... But, like, throughout the book, I enjoyed it. And I didn't just, like, enjoy the the beautiful, like, soliloquy pieces, like, that you read. I didn't just enjoy that. Like, I enjoyed the star's hollowiness. And I, like, really suspended a lot of my skepticism. And I was like, is it because my internal voice is too skeptical? Morgan, I read this in a bubble bath like I don't want you to get the wrong idea about how I enjoyed this book what do you mean I mean like everything that you're saying right like this I mean keep going so you know your internal voice is skeptical what I'm theorizing is is like my internal voice might be too skeptical for me to enjoy books of this ilk to be more specific this kind of Berkeley contempo casual text right what gets my internal voice like really ripping and roaring would be like those older books we read. Mm. But maybe there was something about like a very sincere delivery mm-hmm. of like a woman slightly lowering her voice to portray a man or an older woman that like allowed me to suspend disbelief and also like superseded my own internal voice which i think could have read the phrase pineapple riesling like pineapple riesling <laughs> <laughs> you know and so uh, that's what i was thinking was happening but now i'm thinking like yeah maybe this like wasn't like maybe the romance part of this was just like the doilies you know that were on a very comfortable sofa i will die on the hill that a really good reader of a book on tape can make or break a good or bad book right 100 i don't think it is circumstantial that 
you ostensibly liked the reader of this text and that it helped to tonally soften some of the edges that I think you would have caught yourself on otherwise. And I think the fact that I didn't listen to it made me more prone to notice things like because I when I listen to stuff, it is rare for me to stop and go back and listen if I think it's silly or if I didn't like it or whatever. But when you have the book in your hand, you can absolutely do that, which I think probably made me more skeptical and more irritated with this book. But I did read it in the bubble bath and I did really <laughs> enjoy the bed the bed and breakfast and I did enjoy the takedown and I loved that her school bully was reading a book that she had ghostwritten for Ann Nichols and that she had the pleasure of knowing and didn't even have to tell her. Yeah. Um I I did enjoy it like I mm-hmm. I enjoyed this book a lot. I was annoyed by this book in equal measure and the moments about her dad and death and grief hit me so hard. And I think it it's probably like the postpartum hormones because I like teared up reading you that one line. But like I teared up multiple times in this book. Like it it definitely <laughs> I also did and I have not reproduced, not even <laughs> once. So like there's something in here about the language and the way that it is constructed, even as the skeleton creaks and kerkunks like in spite of itself, that I just couldn't put the book down and I didn't even want to, even as it enraged me <laughs> with its constant references to Christina Lauren and <laughs> Casey McQuiston and, you know, Rebecca Weatherspoon. And I'm like, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I also read romance. And like also the X-Files and Buffy. Yes. And- and pushing up daisies. And... You know, I want to shine. This isn't like super relevant to the text we're talking about, but I, I do want to take a moment to shine a light on something that I'm hearing in our conversation. And that's the fact that we like doubt the legitimacy of our criticism or our intellectualizing of a text based on no real reason at all like the fact that you think that maybe you're the postpartum hormones are what makes you tear Mm. up or the fact that I think like my ability to enjoy a text is like because my own internal voice was superseded I do just want to acknowledge for a moment that there's a lot of uh there's not a lot of self-love happening in these (laughs) descriptions of our readership experience And there's a lot of self-doubt happening there. Oh, man. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I wonder what it would be like to... And I don't wonder what it would be like, because I read stuff all the time by myself, and I don't talk about it with people, and I still have those Mm -hmm. feelings. And so maybe... But, like, I think, like, all... At the risk of... I'm very cautious of superlatives as our podcast has gone on, right? Like... I don't believe all romance is feminist, um, for example. No. But I, I do think like all feelings when you're alone with yourself reading a book are legitimate and probably come from an honest and well-founded place. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was thinking about this when we were talking about A Court of Mist and Fury. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. The second one? Yeah. And like whether or not you should take your 
when you're reading a text, like what should you do with like your repulsion or your disappointment? Like, should you poke at that as if it is illegitimate or should you poke at it as if it is legitimate? And I don't know the answer to that question. But I I don't think that I, I think our two points of self-criticism that we presented here are baloney in hindsight. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I, you know, it is how it is. Like, you know, we we live in a patriarchal society that's constantly forcing us to uh, make our declarative sentences into questions. Yeah. And also to be like, crying is silly. Mm-hmm. and you know, skepticism on our be sweet, right? I was not, as a reader, being sweet (laughs) in my own internal voice. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. So I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that. I appreciate that. That, That's a good, it's a really excellent reminder. And I think you're right. And not only does that disservice to us, but in this book that deserves as much criticism as we've given it, <laughs> does a disservice to the text when it, it really did sing and really did move us. Yeah. Because it did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I don't know. Maybe right now talking about this book in this moment, I've decided that I don't want to feel bad about feeling good reading it even though <laughs> even though I can think of like six reasons I should. Like, something about this text, and I think it's what you've been talking about, the non-love story parts of it, yeah, makes me want to, like, makes me feel good about liking it in spite of all of the evidence that this is not a book that I would like. (laughs) So at the risk of completely derailing this, I want to ask you, what was the sexiest part of this book for you? I have two because I think we've covered ad nauseum what my weirdest part is. <laughs> um, so the first sexiest part for me, which just gave me tingles in every way possible, uh, felt it everywhere, uh, was there in a bookstore and she's with her ghost editor, Benji Andor. And he, she, what is it here? Weren't you a horror editor, I asked, as I slid up to him? Why'd you come to romance? My imprint shuddered. He attempted to take a book off the shelf, but his hand fell through it. He frowned, having forgotten side. That can't be the only reason. I read a book that changed me, and I realized I wanted to help writers write more books like that and find more books like that and give them the chance that they wouldn't have otherwise. Must have been a great book. Bestseller. Have I heard of it? His mouth twisted into a grin as if I'd said something funny. If I've learned anything as an editor over my last 10 years, it's that you never really hear of the good ones. And then, of course, we find out, and I knew immediately that he's talking about her first book, Mm -hmm. the book that failed and that no one read and made her a ghostwriter. And I knew that he was talking about her book. (laughs) And, of course, like, I, I waited and it was very satisfying yeah. when it finally comes out that it was her book that he read at the side of his yeah. um, dying grandmother who yeah. had raised him. And it, it, he, it was the words that he needed then. And I thought like, oh, my God, what a gift to give a writer. What a gift to give this particular character who doesn't believe in her writer. And like to your point that you just made about being generous and kind with yourself and also believing your feelings, like 
that's what he did in that moment. And I was like, fuck, so fucking good. Um, that's a thing. It's like people who like propose that romance is just like wish fulfillment and fantasy fulfillment as a criticism. And then people who defend romance by saying like, no, it's not like I would, I would provide a third argument, which is like, what's wrong with fantasy fulfillment? What's wrong with wish fulfillment? What's wrong with a writer putting on the page? what they most want to hear. And like by reading that, you not only like feel it as you don't have to be a writer to understand that feeling that how good it would be to hear the exact thing you've wanted to hear. You know, you get like the way you grouted that tile made me rethink everything I knew about grouting tile. I said, here is someone who is an artisan. You know, like it just feels it works. Yeah. Being acknowledged works. What's wrong with that? I think that's so good. And like maybe that's what I've also been circling because this book also gives me like crazy hope float vibes. And like what you just said about the tile, um, there's a movie called Phenomenon. And yes, stop it. <laughs> Robert Duvall says this thing um, where he's like, you have to buy her chairs. And it's because the main character is like constantly buying these wicker chairs that this woman is spending all of her time making. And he's like buying her out, um, not because he loves the chairs, but because he loves her and like wants to support her. And like Robert Duvall being like, you don't buy her chairs. You have to buy her chairs. You have, and like what you just said, like about grouting the tile just made me think of that. God, how long has it? Do you know what? I think this is actually the second time we've referenced that movie. Is it? Which makes us the number one phenomena <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's so true. I think we're like four of. Um, I think we're four hope floats references. No way. Probably other romance podcasts are talking about. Hope yeah. How could you time. not? Um, we're still a ways away from being the number one Star Trek podcast. Um, That's true. And I don't think we'll ever, but you've been doing your best. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad that you, you're seeing my work. Morgan, what was your sexiest part? So can I actually go out of order? Because your sexiest part kind of points to one of my weirdest parts. Okay. Which is when Benji Andor shows up as a ghost. Mm-hmm. She thinks that his unfinished business is her not finishing her book contract. I know. (laughs) Which, like, why? Like, the amount of, You're so selfish, you psycho. Well, like, here's the thing. Like, someone can be utterly self-centered and also completely unself-confident. Yep. Like, those two, like... Hating yourself and being self-centered are not mutually exclusive ideas. Good point. And <laughs> and I don't think people realize that, but that was an example of it being like very surfaced for me. I was like, see, and I was like, there is no way that his unfinished business is her third book. And like the book goes on to like make her third book a bigger deal because it's it's it turns out his. Uh, grandmother was the author she's ghostwriting for mm-hmm. and that his grandmother has been dead this whole time and that she was literally <laughs> commissioned by her ghost 
I did like to that. write the to finish the rest of the contract in secret. Mm-hmm. And so it does add like bigger stakes to it, but <laughs> but that's not. She doesn't know that when she thinks that his unfinished business is her book. No, she blithely thinks that, and I'm like a single hot. 36-year-old man doesn't, it's not you, it's not your book. Like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) It's not your fucking book. It's not his job. But then, like, the other, but then, like, the actual resolution isn't that much better. It still presents, like, it's even though, like, the unfinished business was his medical care being able to pull him out of a coma essentially he actually has unfinished business where he's like i think my unfinished business is helping you believe in love again yeah (laughs) so that you can what bone me finish the third book (laughs) and she does does. i actually liked the third book as well the little snippets we got i did too it was a highland romance Mm -hmm. which i thought was nice so that's my weirdest part. That's a great weirdest part. Uh, but it just like jives so well with that speech that he gives her. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sexiest part is um, a lot more obvious. It's the closest we get to ghost sex. Ah, uh, yeah. It's a very sexy scene. But it's also like right before her dad's wake. Yep. Uh, it's in the morning and she's getting ready. And he's also in her Airbnb room. Not Airbnb, regular B&B. Uh, what's ground B and B, or Earth B and B room? <laughs> Thanks. And she's she's getting ready, and he's talking about the things they are talking about the things they would do if they could do them. Because he can't touch her, he's directing her on things to do. And this is not a this is not a dirty book. This is not, you know, there's no wet slapping happening even when he is corporeal do without what you will but that's but listen the more i read these romance novels the higher the bar for wet slapping scenes becomes but the bar but the bar for longing has remained the same yes i agree so take that as you will that's my sexiest part it's a great sexy, like, it's incredibly tingly. Like, she says this thing in that scene, I would drive you crazy. And then he whispers, Florence, you already do. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there's lots of good stuff. He's very, he longs for her. But once again, not that, it, but I am, but I am convinced, I will, I haven't made this clear. I'm convinced by your argument that this isn't really a romance. You've kind of cracked open what we've been poking at for several years now. Like, I think that's kind of a breakthrough that we've actually found an example of an idea that we thought existed. <laughs> yes, I feel like this this functions as a like, I think there have been other contenders, but this one was the most obvious to me. Yeah. In recent memory, where I'm like, you say you're a romance novel, and yet... And yet. Do you have any other weird parts, though, that you want to acknowledge? No, I think we've really covered my weirdest parts, like the references. I mean, I guess the fact that her brother is an adorable gay, but also a tech bro. I mean, you know, it's just 
that kind of stuff was like meh, meh, meh. <laughs> yeah well and like i think what you're getting at is like <laughs> which part am i supposed to be surprised by right that a tech bro can be a gay man or that a gay man can be a tech bro yeah and for a book that's supposed to be um according to rachel hawkins fresh fun and thoroughly modern that sort of gotcha question doesn't feel very modern to me yeah yeah yeah, it doesn't and like maybe like the god maybe the gotcha question is me maybe that's me actually not being thoroughly i don't think it is though because this book is definitely why would i think it why would i think it if it wasn't there Exactly. This book wants you to be like, no, you didn't think that a homosexual could be a check bro, did you? Think again. He's wearing a fleece vest. I bet you (laughs) thought they all wore dresses. (laughs) And feather boas. Well, guess what? Not this particular one. Yeah, as you see, you know, I just that that kind of stuff. I don't think that this book is relentlessly. I think it is relentlessly modern in the sense that it is of this moment, but I don't think it's particularly modern. Well, and there's also like the guy who used to play football in high school is now into anime and dating a non-binary person. Wow. It assumes that you're going to be shocked by how diverse it is. It's like crying out for you to point it out. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, mm, you don't need to do that. Like, you don't need to shout at me. I got it the first time. That, like, that was my weirdest part. This book didn't, in those moments, this book didn't trust me as a reader, and it didn't trust itself as a text. And I was like. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important that you note that, like, it it was weary of both. Yes. Because <laughs> there's sometimes when I read books. Do you know, I think a great example of like a text not trusting its consumer is any Christopher Nolan movie. Yep. It just assumes that it's smarter than whoever is watching it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example. And that it's not. Like there are holes here. (laughs) Like thank God you like make pretty images because like these are glaring. It's so true. Those soundscapes are inescapable, but boy, howdy, there are holes there. The performances are always great. The cinematography is always beautiful. But it's like so like smug about its script, which is like the worst part. Always. (laughs) Um, It's true. uh, Okay. Womance or no mance? It's not a romance. Tricky. It's not a romance at all. So then you would say it's a no-man's. I would say it's a no-man's I highly recommend. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, there, there were books like Bear that I think we declared a womance, which is definitely not a, a romance. <laughs> it's the most Canadian book ever written. Uh, I will say that it's dependent on certain romance assumptions, and I think all the time about Bear. I think it might be my favorite book. That's cool. Um, but I think it like the fact that it chose to have that original cover that was like specifically requested by the author. I mm-hmm. think it like wants you to think about romance while you're anyways. I, you know, so can this like essentially Bear and this text are both non romances that are heavily referencing romance. 
But would you still say a nomance you would recommend? Do I get to have that? Because you're right. Like, you're right to bring up Bear. I did call Bear a womance. And there have been other, like, A Court of Mist and Fury, ostensibly. I mean, it is a romance, even more so than the first one. Mm, I, and, like, our bar is, like, would you recommend it or not? And, yes, I would recommend this book. So I guess it has to be a romance. But I would like to rethink our calibration because I, this is not a romance. And I do recommend it. You got a lot of asterisks. Well, here's the thing. Like, I, I think there's something about Bear that wants you to think about romance but doesn't make a claim towards being romance. Mm-hmm. And I think this book does make a claim. Yeah, which is why it's not – it makes a claim, but, like, that's not the best part of the book, which is why, like, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to romance fans, but I might recommend this to people who want to read books about ghosts or death. I don't think – yeah, I think maybe about grief. Yes. Or, like, family. Mm-hmm. I think this book has a lot to say about has a lot to say about grief. Yes. Without like pausing to grieve because <laughs> it is sparkling. It is. Would I call this a romance or, or a nomance or a womance? Would I recommend it? I can't think of a person I would recommend this book to. Hmm. Like I'm glad I read it, but like you said, like I I wouldn't really recommend it to like a romance reader because it didn't really it didn't give me enough of those consistent tingles related to like falling in love and feeling all a flutter because of the, the super fucking bang on stuff you pointed out earlier. Um, and super hard to find. I. It's not like, well, a nomance isn't really like saying something's a bad book, right? What's nice about having the kind of loose, loose way of, of thinking about nomance versus womance is that it allows you to kind of say like, and truly like not all nomances are bad books. They're just like not books for us or like not books that we would recommend or like, you know. So I think this would be a nomance for me. But having said that, it's a nomance that I'm really glad that we read together. And I also think it would, you know, and I can very much, very confidently say like this is a, this would be a romance for like a lot of readers. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend this to people. There are people that I can think of that I would recommend it to, but they're not romance readers. I don't know. It's a tricky question. I would say it's a, it's a, it's a nomance for me, but I would say it's like a very like, meh. I guess no man's, you know. Yeah. Not a not a hard not a hard no. Not a hard no. Like a soft no w- emphasis on the woe. Complicated no. Like the true millennials we are back when Facebook had the relationship status. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> That's how modern this book is. <laughs> That's how modern. All right. Well, with that, uh, speaking of modernity, loosen your stays. But never your principles. 
We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.